Well, hello, and welcome to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and we're hopefully going to lead you down the primrose path of some interesting jazz performances during this show. My purpose in doing this is to focus on some unusual or little-known aspects of jazz history, maybe just one recording session or a soloist or particular songwriter or some other little theme like that, so not a great big overarching attempt to give you jazz history in one mouthful. Today, what I am hoping to do is to give you something that maybe you haven't heard of before. This is uh, Tommy Dorsey's Clambake 7. Now, you've probably heard of that group if you're into traditional jazz and jazz history, but these particular recordings were made for Standard Transcriptions, which was a radio transcription service in March of 1936. I'm sure of the exact date, but uh, just about then. And it catches the uh, the Dorsey Clambake 7 at an interesting period, right when it was getting started as a jazz group, as opposed to the standard dance band that Dorsey also led. Uh, Tommy Dorsey was born in 1905. He died in 1956, making him at his death exactly the same age that I am right now, which was not a pleasant realization. He had uh, grown up in fairly rural Pennsylvania with his older brother, Jimmy Dorsey. They were trained in music by their father. Jimmy was primarily a reed player. Tommy was primarily a trombone player, although they both played other things as well. Both were more than capable trumpet players, in fact. And uh, they used music to get out of uh, a fairly desperate uh, existence in, in poverty in the in the coal mines and so forth in Pennsylvania. They went on the road very young um, and went up the ranks of professional musicians pretty quickly actually. By the middle 1920s or the late 1920s they were both playing with Paul Whiteman's band which was about the summit of popular music at the time for a white musician and uh, from there they went on to lead their own bands. They co-led a band for several years, the Dorsey Brothers Orchestra, and uh, they created some very good early big band jazz using musicians uh, like Glenn Miller and uh, Ray McKinley and uh, a lot of different players who went on to careers with other performers as well. In May of 1935, they were actually starting to become a hit. They were uh, they had a whole series of recordings out, several of which had become quite popular, and they looked like they were going to rise to the top of the dance band era. And at that point, we were they didn't know it yet, but the swing era was just about to be launched. Uh, but unfortunately, tempers flared. They uh, were two Irish boys who uh, got into it with each other on a regular basis, and they had pretty significant tempers, and uh, on the stage in May of 1935 at the Glen Island Casino, so the story goes, they had an argument about a tempo of a song, which might have been I'll Never Say Never Again Again, and uh, Tommy walked off the stand not to return for many years uh, to Jimmy Dorsey, and actually many years later in the 1950s it was Jimmy who returned to Tommy's band. So following that May dust-up, Tommy went on the road and started assembling his own band. Actually, what he did was he took over an existing band that was led by Joe Hames, who uh, was a band leader who uh, had a fairly successful group in the early to mid-30s that was playing some very interesting early big band types of jazz. And Tommy took that band over in the summer of 1935, broke it in, added a few soloists and so forth, and ended up uh, recording with it in, I think it was September of 1935, and uh, doing quite well. He had a recording contract for RCA Victor, got some very plum recording dates, and uh, began his career as a band leader, which was one of the most successful ones in his time. Tommy Dorsey, as a trombone player, was not known as a particularly uh, 
convincing jazz player. He was an outstanding technical player, and his way with a ballad, of course, is well known. Uh, Frank Sinatra, for one, gave him credit for helping form his vocal technique when Sinatra played with his band several years later, just listening to how he phrased on the trombone. Uh, Tommy Dorsey didn't have a terrifically high opinion of his own jazz abilities, although he certainly was capable, and sometimes quite a bit more than that. He uh, decided to feature with his regular band, a small group called the Clambake Seven, and started recording with that in December of 1935. He would feature them occasionally on broadcasts and certainly on records as well. He had a, um, an interest in Dixieland jazz. That's what first attracted him to the music, and his brother as well for that matter. And he always had good jazz players in his band. A little bit later on in his career, he uh, went a little more modern, I guess you'd have to say, in the late 1930s when he hired Cy Oliver away from the Jimmy Lunsford band to create some really fantastic jazz scores. But this was earlier in uh, Tommy Dorsey's career, and uh, initially he wanted to be known as a hot jazz band, but pretty soon his uh, handlers and managers and so forth impressed upon him the fact that his ballad performances were doing a lot better commercially and he should focus on that. But he decided he did want some jazz in his routine, so he had the Clambake 7. They made a number of recordings uh, in December of 1935 and for the next month or two for RCA Victor. Uh, the performers on this uh, group were not terribly, terribly well-known, and most of the recordings were not overtly jazzy. They were basically small group swing recordings of pop standards, many of which featured his vocalist, Edith Wright. Sometime in about March of 1936, he must have reached the conclusion that he wanted more jazz players in his band because he started hiring some interesting players. First of all, he hired uh, Dave Tuff, who was a great jazz drummer, one of the most influential white drummers of the day. He, uh, had been born and raised in Chicago, the Chicago area, and he had played hot jazz in that area with the Eddie Condon groups and Red McKenzie and the Austin High School gang very early in the, well, in the mid to late 1920s. His dates were from 1907 to 1948, and he joined Dorsey early in 1936 and stayed with him until the very end of 1937. Around the same time, he hired, Tommy Dorsey hired, Max Kaminsky on trumpet. Kaminsky was born in Brockton, Massachusetts, and uh, he was playing in the early uh, 1920s in the Boston area. Uh, he ended up going to Chicago and doing quite a bit of work with the Chicago musicians for a year or so, around 1928. Uh, he lived from 1908 to 1994, a very long life. He was known primarily as a Dixieland player, but he played in quite a few big bands as well, including one of Glenn Miller's bands, an early version of the Artie Shaw Band, and the Tommy Dorsey Band from March of 1936 to the end of that year. So he lasted about nine months or so there. Also in the band was a clarinet player named Joe Dixon. He also had a bit of a Boston connection. He was born in Lynn, Massachusetts. Uh, he studied uh, as a very young man at the New England Conservatory, classical clarinet, and he was playing professionally by the time he was 17 or 18 in New York City. He was born in uh, 1917, so by 1936 when he joined Tommy Dorsey, uh, he was only 19 years old, and he stayed with him for about a year, year and a half, uh, playing on uh, the big band tracks, being his primary clarinet soloist, and also being featured quite extensively in the Clambake 7. After that, he became a studio musician. He had played with Bunny Berrigan for a while in the Eddie Condon groups, and he uh, played in various uh, revival and Dixieland groups up until he passed away in 1998. On tenor sax was a fellow named Sid Block. I don't know much about him. He... Uh, 
stayed with uh, Dorsey not too long. He uh, was only with him from the beginning of 1936 till about April. Uh, these recordings that we're going to hear were probably about the last things that he did with the Dorsey Band, and he was replaced by Bud Freeman about a week later. Uh, so we can lament the fact that Bud was not on these particular recordings, but Sid Block is, an, is a capable musician, certainly. Maybe not an inspired jazz player, but he takes a few very good solos, as we will hear. I don't know what happened to him after that. I imagine he went into the studios, but I don't know of any other affiliations following the Tommy Dorsey Band. So the piano player for these sessions was a fellow named Dick Jones, a person I don't know too much about either. He was uh, with the Dorsey Band from December of 1935 all the way up till the end of March of 1937. So he was there for quite a while. He's listed as playing piano and arranging as well, although I don't know what tracks he arranged. They don't seem to be credited in the standard discographies. So he is not featured here, no piano solos really, but he's certainly an integral part of the rhythm section. A fellow named William Schaefer was the guitar player. He was with Dorsey at this point. He was replaced not too long after by Carmen Mastron, who is better known to the jazz aficionados, and uh, Gene Traxler on bass. He was born in Pennsylvania in uh, 1913 and lived, I believe, into the 1990s. I actually knew a, a, a lady who was a classmate of his who said she was still in touch with him in the 90s, so I don't know if he was playing, but he was there and he had a fairly long career playing with big bands and studio bands and so forth, and also on the radio as well. So rounding out this group, in addition to the leader, Tommy on trombone, we have Edith Wright. She was, as I said, Dorsey's primary singer from September of 1935 when he started the band up until uh, August or August or so of 1939, and she was replaced by several singers, Connie Haynes and Joe Stafford and so forth, until the Tommy Dorsey years. She was featured on well over 100 recordings, commercially issued recordings, by the Dorsey Band, including, uh, or rather not including, these uh, radio transcriptions, and there were quite a few of these, not including the ones that we're about to talk about for the Clambake 7. Her dates were 1916 to 1965. So these radio transcriptions were created by certain companies. This was for the Standard Transcription Company. There were other companies too, the World Transcription Company and, and many others. And these were um, organizations that would record bands, sometimes well-known bands, sometimes not so well-known bands, for occasional music at radio stations. They would be recorded on um, 33 and a third discs, which were unusual at the time. Uh, most commercial discs were 78 RPMs. These were large discs, so they could hold more than one track. They could hold four or five tracks on each side, although I think they may only have been recorded on one side. And they were licensed to radio stations, so they circumvented copyright and union restrictions on here. The bands were usually usually given pseudonyms, um, so uh, this particular group, the Clambake 7, was called uh, something like Paul Dolan's Dixieland or something like that, uh, or Tom Dolan's Dixieland, because it had the same um, initials as Tommy Dorsey, and many other groups had similar things too. The Benny Goodman Band famously recorded uh, a whole series of, of big band performances in 1935, something like 52 uh, performances, all done in one fell swoop as if they were playing a live gig, and they were issued as the rhythm makers on the Thesaurus transcriptions discs. So that was one more famous version of that, but all, many of the bands uh, did these things, primarily um, white bands, Jimmy Dorsey, Casaloma, uh, 
all sorts of things. Even Woody Herman and Isham Jones, I think, did some. And there were a few African-American bands as well. I believe Chick Webb did a handful of transcriptions. And these were discs that you know smaller radio stations could rent and license and buy and whatnot and use as incidental music and sometimes giving the impression that there was a live band in the studio, although I'm sure the union wouldn't be too thrilled with that. So this particular uh, series of transcriptions, as I said, was made in some point in March of 1936. It was right after Dave Tuff and Max Kaminsky had joined the band and right before Bud Freeman was to join the band. And it features uh, or, or it presents this group as a very well-rehearsed but fairly free-blowing uh, ensemble. It had a lot of Dixieland overtones, as you might expect, uh, but it's a little bit more free and jazzy than the commercial recordings by the Clambake 7, which are often very arranged and in some ways not even terribly distinguishable from the big band sides. We're going to start with three tracks we're going to listen to of the uh, Clambake 7. Somebody Stole My Gal, which is just an out-and-out -out Dixieland performance, and uh, you know that uh, tune probably from many Dixieland performances. From 1918, it was composed by Leo Wood. Then we're going to go to a contemporary pop tune from 1936 by Edgar Leslie and Joe Burke called Cabin in the Sky, which features a very nice Edith Wright vocal. And then we're going to follow that up with another contemporary jazz tune by Chew Berry and Andy Rizaf, of 1936 called Christopher Columbus. This is a very early recording of this. This was the big hit for the Fletcher Henderson uh, Orchestra at the time, and this is a small group version of that that features good jazz all around. So we'll take a quick listen to uh, all three of these versions. Somebody Stole My Gal, Cabin in the Sky, and Christopher Columbus.
So that gives us a little idea of the uh, swing era and the small groups and how they uh, arrived at that style. Tommy Dorsey is sometimes given credit for having been the first band leader to introduce a small group, a band within the band with this Clambake 7. Depends how you identify it, I guess. Benny Goodman was really the first. His first recordings with the Benny Goodman Trio were in July of 1935, so about five or six months before Tommy Dorsey did, but they didn't actually play too often with the big band, at least not at that point. Um, it was, of course, a mixed group with Teddy Wilson, an African-American pianist, and so many places they wouldn't have been allowed to have played, although Goodman got many of those rules changed as time went on. But Tommy Dorsey's Clambake 7 was a group that he featured occasionally on broadcasts and in live performances as well, so in that sense it probably was the first. So we heard Somebody Stole My Gal, uh, which featured some really fine clarinet playing by the 19-year-old uh, Joe Dixon, who was, as I said, from Boston. He seemed to have listened quite carefully to Larry Shields, uh, as reflected on that particular performance. He sounded very similar in some ways to the original Dixieland Jazz Band clarinet player from 20 years before that. After that, we heard some very uh, unusually... Uh, long-termed solo, that's not a very good way of saying it, but a long solo by Max Kaminsky on trumpet. Max was usually known as a lead player in a Dixieland band. He was renowned for uh, being able to play accurate and correct melodies, which one would think wouldn't be remarkable, but is uh, nonetheless in trumpet players. And uh, Eddie Condon, for one, said that he was his favorite trumpet player for that reason, but he was not usually given great length to solo because he was playing leads and so forth. Here he did get a little more time, Stayed strictly in the middle register, nothing flashy, but uh, effective nonetheless. And then we had Tommy Dorsey himself playing a buzz-toned uh, trombone solo. Very unusual for him to cover up his sound with a mute like that, but much hotter sound than usual. But that changes in the next song, Cabin in the Sky, which featured uh, Edith Wright singing the vocal, but featured a lovely Tommy Dorsey uh, melody chorus uh, right out front, the way he did with, on so many of his big band charts as well. Then we finished up with Christopher Columbus, and uh, that had an especially good Max Kaminsky solo, a muted solo, a couple of times actually, along with Joe Dixon and Tommy Dorsey, and uh, we got our first uh, exposure to some tenor sax by Sid Block. A little bit more to come as we go. So this band, as I said, was uh, playing quite a lot uh, all up and down the eastern seaboard in the Clambake 7 was becoming quite well-known as well, and this was how Tommy Dorsey got his jazz kicks. The band itself, the full band, didn't play a lot of jazz tunes, and when they did, they tended to be more along the Dixieland uh, style. For example, tunes like Weary Blues and Beale Street Blues and St. Louis Blues, things like that that were generally Dixieland tunes to begin with that were scored out for the big band by a variety of arrangers. So we're going to hear three more tunes, one pop tune of the day and two of a very earlier vintage. The first song is called I'll Bet You Tell That to All the Girls. I should mention that I am taking these tracks from a CD that was issued in 1994 on Viper's Nest called Tommy Dorsey and his Clambake 7, The Panic is On, a Max Kaminsky memorial. This was issued right after Max Kaminsky passed away and so it was dedicated to him. So. I'll Bet You Tell That to All the Girls was a pop tune from 1936 by Charles Tobias and Sam Stepped. Uh, jazz aficionados might know it a little bit better in the Red Allen version, uh, where he takes quite a characteristic Red Allen vocal. There is no vocal on this particular recording. Uh, one wonders why. Maybe they had featured Edith Wright enough, or maybe it wasn't in the right key and they didn't want to change it. Who knows? But we are uh, 
given the benefit of that extra time to hear some more solos. The solos are chiefly given over to Joe Dixon, who plays a very long solo, and then uh, Sid Block plays a uh, one of his better tenor solos on this uh, recording, and then Kaminsky and Dorsey trade fours back and forth, and they really get into it. They start uh, uh, showing some spontaneous jazz. These were all done, as far as I know anyway, in one take. They were not uh, uh, aiming for perfection on these. They were aiming for something more like uh, efficiency, I guess, just to get things out of the way, and a boo-boo here and there was overlooked, and we're going to hear a pretty significant boo-boo on a recording coming up a little bit later. So after that, we're going to finish up with a uh, an old uh, tune, older probably than its uh, uh, composition date of 1924. Gene Austin and Roy Berger uh, composed How Come You Do Me Like You Do, which was a 16-bar theme that uh, had a chord progression that was used in numerous other tunes like Jada, Doxy, things like that with some modifications. But that type of chord progression was probably almost as old as the blues. And this particular song features Edith Wright doing a sort of a bluesy vocal. She was not too convincing as a bluesy singer, but she did a good job here. And Tommy Dorsey. Now, Tommy Dorsey starts out his solo quoting the Miff Mole solo from the 1920s. He recorded this with Red Nichols and some of the 1920s musicians that Tommy Dorsey had come up with. And uh, Dorsey freely admitted that he was influenced by Miff Mole and a little later by Jack Teagarden in his jazz playing. So we're going to hear those three songs now. We're going to hear I'll Bet You Tell That to All the Girls, How Come You Do Me Like You Do, and we're going to finish up with My Honey's Lovin' Arms by Ruby and Meyer from 1922, featuring solos by Joe Dixon and Tommy Dorsey. So we have those three numbers to look forward to, and hope you enjoy them.
come you do me like you do, do, do? How come you do me like you do? Why do you try to make me feel so blue when I ain't done nothing to you? If you rave, I'll have to get you told Cause I can change your temperature from hot to cold How come you do me like you do, do, do? How come you do me like you do? So there's some different Dixieland things happening in there. Um, the first and third tunes, um, starting with, or, uh, um, 
I'll bet you tell that to all the girls, followed by My Honey's Love and Arms, were pretty heavily arranged. They were probably playing from stock arrangements that were cut down to eight pieces instead of the usual 12 or 13 at that point. But then the middle one, How Come You Do Me Like You Do, sounded like it could have passed for one of the Condon Commodores from two or three years later. Very jazzy with a nice slow drag tempo settled in there uh, beautifully by Dave Tuff on drums. So, uh, we heard I'll Bet You Tell That to All the Girls, which featured a, a long clarinet solo by Joe Dixon, as well as an exciting uh, series of trades between Max Kaminsky and Tommy Dorsey, who really energized each other on that one. And then a little bit of tenor sax by Sid Block. We'll hear a little bit more from him on a tune coming up in just a second. Then we did... Uh, How Come You Do Me Like You Do, as I said, featuring Edith Wright on the vocals, but uh, enveloping a trombone solo in tribute to Miff Mold by Tommy Dorsey. Then we ended up with My Honey's Love and Arms, another fine clarinet solo and a little bit of trombone along the way. So we have a a good picture of what... uh, uh, made Tommy Dorsey happy at this stage of his career in terms of jazz. This was jazz he returned to really for the rest of his career from time to time. Later on with his bands with Frank Sinatra and the Cy Oliver arrangements, he didn't get a lot of chance to play Dixieland, but occasionally we're told that he would pick up a trumpet and uh, feature himself on a tune or two, sometimes a Dixieland tune, late in the evening on a live date. We're going to play one more number. Um, for you right now. And this is another old-timey tune, same chord progression or similar to How Come You Do Me Like You Do, I just mentioned. It's called Jada. It's from 1918. Bob Carlton composed this. It was actually probably a a kid's song, a sing-song playground type of tune that was formalized and had quite a bit of popularity in its day. This is, uh, I think, a throwaway. I believe this was the last tune they recorded. It's only about two minutes long, and there are a couple of boo-boos on here, um, really, by Max Kaminsky. This tune can be played as a 16-bar tune or an 18-bar tune, and uh, it's done often in each way. You just have to agree beforehand which way you're going to do it. And apparently Max Kaminsky didn't get the memo because he tried to turn it into the shorter form where everybody else was doing the extra two bars. He twice decided to come in early on the next chorus. So um, it was still released. As I said, these were warts and all performances sometimes. And there are some good things on here as well. There's actually a very good Max Kaminsky solo, a good Joe Dixon clarinet solo, actually a very good Sid Block tenor solo, probably his best on record. And it starts out with some very nice drumming by Dave Tuff. So we're going to finish up our program. We'll come back after that, but finish up our musical part of the program with Jada by the Clambake 7 in March of 1936 for standard transcriptions.
So there's Tommy Dorsey's Clam Bake 7 in full cry. That's about half the CD, as I mentioned. Uh, I was taking this from a Viper's Nest CD, VN-154, from 1994. And this is, uh, I guess, the full session for tran standard transcriptions done by the Clam Bake 7. Uh, there were other... Uh, uh, transcription sessions done by the full band, but I believe this is the only one that was done by the small group. There might have been some odd tracks here and there on some of the other dates, but this is a, an unusual one. So we're happy to have that, and it has some very welcome playing uh, by people like Joe Dixon, especially, and Max Kaminsky. You know, soloists we don't hear at length uh, on record all that much. Joe Dixon, we heard a lot of recordings uh, done with the Dorsey Band, and then later with the uh, Bunny Berrigan Band, and then with some various Eddie Condon groups as well. But this is uh, a welcome addition to his discography. And, of course, Max Kaminsky is a very well-recorded trumpet player, but not so much in a solo capacity sometimes. So I hope you've enjoyed this uh, little walk down memory lane, or creating new memories perhaps with Tommy Dorsey's Clambake 7, showing how some of these uh, commercial big bands of the 1930s also played very respectable jazz and sometimes preferred that. Good to know, good to be reminded that this was at the very dawn of the swing era. Of course, Benny Goodman made his big hit at the Palomar Ballroom in July of 1935, less than a year before this, and a rising tide uh, lifts all boats, as they say, so Tommy Dorsey's band became even more popular because of that, and then gradually overtook the Goodman band in some categories, especially ballads and, and sweet tunes, and then when he added Frank Sinatra to the stable a little bit later, it took him to an entirely another level of commercial possibilities. So you've been listening to The Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark. We're going to be dropping in and out of these jazz podcasts as time allows. Hopefully we'll have them being released on a regular basis and uh, we'll keep you up to date where to find them. So thank you very much and see you on the other side. <laughs>